Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my great privilege to get to preach this morning out of Luke chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to go ahead and turn there. And I invite you to stand. We're going to read through the whole chapter to get our minds around what we're looking at today. And then we'll look into it. So this is Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And you can follow along on the screen here behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word that so uh, guides us to your Son. We pray that you would give us wisdom now as we study it. Help us, Lord, to understand it rightly. Help me to, to serve our church well today in uh, the preaching of your word. And may, may you be glorified in our midst today, just as you were glorified uh, through this story long ago. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Go ahead and have a seat. You guys, you guys are on it. Um, have, you, have you ever been in a situation where 
your, your lack of knowledge was exposed. You know, like you, you tried to fake knowing something that you didn't actually know much about and, and you got kind of caught in the midst of it. This happened to me one time when I was at Lowe's. And I don't know about you guys, but when I go into Lowe's, I'm, I'm usually looking for a part, uh, usually trying to get some free advice. And I'm usually trying to get out of there without revealing that I don't actually know what I'm doing and trying to fix what I'm trying to fix. And so this particular time, we had an issue with our plumbing in our bathtub and uh, had a leak or something. And so I was in the plumbing department and I was talking with this guy and I was kind of asking him some questions and, and trying to, to fill some things out. I think I was like repeating some things I'd read on the internet before I got there and asking him questions about it. And so finally I said to him, well, how hard of a job is this? And he said, well, how are you at sweating? And I said, I mean, I'm not afraid to work. And he kind of looked at me real confused and he said, no, do, do you have any experience sweating? And I was thinking, I'm kind of starting to sweat right now. I don't, I don't understand what we're talking about. Um, and, and finally, I just looked at him and I said, I, I don't know what you're asking me. And, and, and he went on to explain, and some of you guys are not getting the joke because you also don't understand what was going on in that moment. Um, he went on to explain that sweating is referring to sweating pipes, uh, sometimes called soldering pipes, involves a blowtorch, some fire, and needless to say, I did not have experience doing that. Uh, I had no clue what the guy was talking about. And even though I was trying to act like I understood, the, the situation made it very clear that I did not. I just didn't know what was going on. And, and I tell that story because that chapter we just read, one of the key themes there in Luke 5 is this whole issue of knowledge. I mean, who, who really understands what's going on and, and what these events mean? And, and it's not always so clear. I mean, through, through several different acts here, Jesus is going to show that his knowledge is clearly superior, uh, even when you might not expect it to be, as he jumps in the boat of a, uh, an experienced fisherman. And, and some people seem to think they understand the situations that they're going through, but as we go through the story, we realize they're maybe a bit more ignorant than, than even they thought they were. And then others begin to comprehend what's happening around them, and yet their knowledge, lacking faith, does not seem to lead them anywhere. So the stories confront us with a profound question that I want us to, to think about today as we walk through Luke chapter 5. Do we really know Jesus? Do, do we truly know him? Or, or have we perhaps been faking it in one way or another? And so as, as we think about that question, I, I want to point out three truths about Jesus that we find here in this chapter. And this, these are going to provide us some kind of headings for our time together. Feel free to write them down at the beginning, but you can't leave after I tell you the three points. You've got to stick around to see what they, they are. But here are the three points if you want to jot them down. The first one is that Jesus possesses the knowledge to transform. The second... Jesus possesses the compassion to heal. And third, Jesus possesses the authority to forgive. So he has the knowledge to transform, the compassion to heal, and the authority to forgive. We'll start with the knowledge to transform as we look there at that first story. So you look at the beginning of Luke chapter 5. Crowds are gathering around Jesus to hear the word of God. And Jesus is near a lake, so he gets in a boat. This is not an incidental thing. He, I think he's actually setting up his point here. Just like he's going to use Peter's boat, he's going to show Peter, I'm going to use you too. I'm going to put you to work. I'm going to access your resources and use them for my 
purposes. But before Simon Peter can experience that, he first has to understand his need for Jesus. And so Jesus is going to enter into his world and he's going to reveal this in a very vivid way. And we see it there in verse 4. It said, when Jesus had finished speaking, he turned to Simon Peter and he said, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And this is interesting because we have a carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish in his own boat, no less. And so that tension around knowledge is developing. I mean, if you're just a spectator here in the moment, you're thinking, who is this guy to tell Simon Peter how to fish from his own boat? I mean, Simon was an experienced fisherman. He had probably spent his entire life plumbing the depths of this lake. He, we learned from the other Gospels, has spent the entire night before plumbing the depths of this lake. He, he knows what he's doing, and yet Jesus is here to show that he knows what's going on even better than Peter himself. And so we read on, Simon reluctantly obeys, and they haul in a huge catch of fish. And if you read some of the, the ancient commentaries on this from the early church, they, they have all sorts of ideas about what these two different boats represented. One is the Jews and one is the Gentiles. And some of that stuff is fun. I don't, I don't think that's what's actually going on here. I think the, the big thing we're to take away from this story and, and this miracle is that this is really a miracle of knowledge. And what I mean by that is it's a miracle of knowledge as opposed to a miracle of creation. If we're to assume that this is, story is true, there are a couple different explanations I can think of as to how Jesus pulled this off. Right? Peter and his buddies had been fishing all night long. They didn't catch anything. Uh, Jesus tells them to go fish right there, and suddenly they pull in all this fish. So A, Jesus created a bunch of new fish. In that moment, Jesus said, go fish right there, zap. I mean, we know he can do this, right? Because in the other Gospels, he takes a few fish from a little boy, and somehow everybody eats and is filled. So he, he could have done this. I mean, this could be a legitimate explanation. Simon and his buddies go in. They haul in some very, very fresh fish, right? Jesus just created them in the moment. And suddenly their boats are overfilled. Uh, that one took a second for everybody to kind of trickle in. Um, anyway, um, made me lose my spot <laughs> mentally. So uh, they haul in some fresh fish. Uh, and it's a, it's a miracle of creation. But I, I don't think it's actually what's going on here. I think this is more of a miracle of knowledge. Because I, I think the point where to get out of the story is not, wow, Jesus can make fish appear. But no, Jesus knows the depths of this water even better than the experienced fisherman in his midst. And he's setting up a larger point that not only does he know the deeps of the lake, but he knows the depths of their own heart. And, and I think Peter gets that. And that's why I think that's what's going on. If you look at verse 8, Peter says, I mean, imagine he catches all this fish and everybody else is excited. It says in, in verse 9 that they're astonished. Peter does not sound astonished or excited. He sounds afraid, right? Depart from me, he says, as he's falling down in front of Jesus. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, Peter begs Jesus to go away because he realizes in that moment his true ignorance is exposed. He, he, he is suddenly coming face to face with the reality that he is unworthy to stand before this man who is in his own boat. Have you ever experienced a moment like that where you begin to think about the Lord and you begin to think about yourself and you're just kind of overwhelmed with your own inadequacy? And maybe, maybe you come face to face with some sin in your life. 
or you just come face to face with your own ignorance. You're going through something and you think it's going to go out this way. You think things are going to turn out in a particular way. Something totally unexpected happens and you just realize, gosh, I just have no clue what I'm doing. I am in over my head. I think that's somewhat what Peter is going through in this moment. Now, the, the narrative moves quickly, but Peter's words are strong. This is a major moment in his life. He is falling before this man and confessing, I am completely unworthy of being with you or being involved in what you are doing. And then in a shocking display of grace, rather than casting him out, Jesus invites him in. So I, I think what we're to get here is that Jesus knows Simon even better than Simon Peter knows himself. And yet, Jesus wants to put him to work. I mean, imagine that moment at Lowe's when I made it clear to that guy that I didn't actually know what I was talking about and I really had no chance of fixing that bathtub. Imagine if he offered me a job afterward. I mean, that's sort of what happens here. Jesus exposes Simon Peter for, for his lack of knowledge of what's going on. And then when Simon is humbled, then he invites him in. And what an encouragement to us all. Jesus knows us, yet he knows us well enough to change us and then put us to work, to involve us in what he's doing. When I was in college, I had an opportunity to work at a YMCA uh, day camp. And so uh, throughout the day, I basically just uh, hung out with other people's kids. Um, this is the kind of thing you think is fun when you're in college and then you have kids and it's like the last thing you'd ever want to do is hang out with other people's kids. But in college, I thought it was a lot of fun. And um, I, was, uh, I was working one day and we were going to have a cookout and they put me to work uh, putting together a grill. And uh, I've already mentioned I'm not the handiest guy in the world, so this was not the easiest thing for me to do. But to complicate matters, I had a couple of kids that wanted to, to help me. And so they were... They were helping me um, by, by basically asking me lots of questions and distracting me while I was trying to get it done. And so I decided I'm going I'm to give them some jobs. And so I, I, I had a little guy, I think his name is Daniel. And I said, Daniel, why don't you hold these screws for me? So I put the screws in Daniel's hand. A couple minutes later, I turned around, Daniel, can you hand me one of those screws? Okay, now you drop them in the grass and we, you know, we've got to find the screws. And I had this little girl and she was supposed to hold the instructions. Somehow she misplaced those. And now we're flying blind here. We don't have instructions for this thing. And, and all the while, I'm just getting more and more frustrated that these kids are helping and their help is not really all that helpful at all. And then they started telling these stories that really struck me. They started telling stories about how they had helped their parents. And so this little guy, Daniel, starts telling me about when he and his dad fixed his mom's car. And then this little girl, uh, she starts telling me about how she and her mom made brownies. She helped her mom make brownies for her sister's birthday. And as I was listening, I was thinking, I've seen these kids in action. I know they weren't helpful, <laughs> you know, um, but, it's, but it's pretty cool that those parents involved them. You know, they obviously did not invite them in because they needed their help. They invited them in for the sake of the, the kids. And as I was just kind of thinking on that in that moment, the Lord it just humbled me in a real way that I'll never forget. It's just like suddenly I realized this is exactly how my relationship with God works. Like that this is my ministry in an essence. I bring nothing to the table. You, you put things in my hand and I drop them. I mean, you give me things to do and I lose sight of the goal. I forget what we're about. I, I make it about me instead of you. I'm an absolute mess. 
And yet in your grace and in your kindness, you involve me. You, you put me to work in, in your mission. And, and I think that's some of what we're seeing happening here. I think for any of us who have ever felt unworthy or, or incapable of, of being involved in the mission of God, I would invite you to hear the words of Jesus here that he says to Peter. Peter is humbled. He's, he's scared. He's not sure what to do in this moment. Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. See, see I know you're a mess, but I'm going to put you to work. I've got a plan for you, despite all of your inadequacies and failures. He knows Simon, but he knows him well enough to change him. So Jesus possesses the knowledge to transform. And then we see secondly in the second story here, Jesus possesses the compassion to heal. Uh, we get a story about a man with leprosy. And he comes to Jesus, and it's interesting. He seems to acknowledge that Jesus has the power to heal him. But what he's unsure of is, is whether or not Jesus would consider him worthy of being healed. I mean, you see it there when he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's not, he's not saying, uh, would you, but he's, or he's not saying, could you, but he's saying, would you? Are you, are you willing to do this? And it, it's interesting uh, in the original language here that the way this is organized, um, it makes it very clear that he wasn't sure what the answer would be. And so uh, in, in Greek, you can organize sentences in a way that would, whether a question or a statement like this, it, it would reveal sort of the, the answer you were expecting, right? So we do this with our tone of voice. Like I might say, you're not rooting for the Patriots tonight, are you? Right? And you all, you all know that I'm, I'm implying surely you're not. Like I'm expecting the answer no, Right. Uh, or I could say, you guys are going to stick around and help afterward, right? And in, in saying it that way, you know, I'm implying, yes, you're going to, right? Well, the, the third way is just sort of bare neutral. And that's what, that's what this guy does here. The way he says this is basically, I'm not sure if you will. I, I, he's not implying yes. He's not implying no. He just genuinely does not know. So, so to simplify all that, the man has no presumption. The, the statement is made in, in weakness and, I think, humility. And that's to be expected. I mean, in the ancient world, lepers were total outcast. Uh, some considered them contagious. This, leprosy was a skin disease, and so people were afraid they would catch it if they touched them. Um, the, the Jews considered them ritually unclean, so they, they didn't have access to the temple and, and certain aspects of, of Jewish religious life. And so this man had lived with this for some time, being sort of on the outside of society, looking in. And then notice how Jesus demonstrates his com compassion to him. It's the most dramatic way possible. Uh, he, he doesn't just speak to him, but look at verse 13. It says, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. I mean, his, his word would have healed him, but I think his touch spoke even louder. He's able to say to the man, not only am I willing to heal you, but I understand what your true needs are. You know, I mean, it, you've got a skin issue. I, I get that, and, and we can repair that. That's no problem. But I know that deep down beneath the surface, you've got a bigger problem than these legions on your skin. You, you, you feel separated from humanity. You feel separated from God. You feel a distance. And I want you to feel the full reconciliation of that distance. I want, I want you to feel fully readmitted into society so I'm not just going to phone this in and heal you by voice. <laughs> that would have been impressive enough. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to show ultimate compassion. And I'm going to touch you. 
And I think it sets an example for us as Christians today. I mean, if we're to follow the example of our Lord, we have to be willing to love those that others look past, even when it's risky to us. And, and if you watch the headlines these days, you know there are plenty of ample opportunity for that. Uh, we have some 60 million refugees in our world and uh, a crisis like nothing that history has seen before. And, and I want to I encourage us as a church, uh, while, while others are arguing about policy and national security and, and things like that, those are, those are important issues and they have their place for discussion. But I, I want to encourage us as a church, let's view this as an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to, to really rise up and show compassion, to show, show a compassion that, that takes action in a way that mirrors the actions of our Lord. But as we do, I, I want to I offer a warning as we think about these things and, and try to envelop it into something we see here in this story. As we do, I think we have to be very, very careful about the temptation to follow the crowd, even in showing compassion. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you look down here at verse 15, uh, basically Jesus tells the guy, go to the priest, don't tell anybody else. The guy obviously doesn't listen because this report spreads. And all of a sudden, there are these great crowds gathering about Jesus, they all want to be healed. And so there, there's this growing excitement, and we're going to see it develop even more in the next story. But the, the thing about crowds, when we read about crowds in the Gospels in particular, we always have to remember how quickly crowds can turn astray. You know, I mean, these same crowds, many of these same people, in fact, are going to someday be shouting for this man that they're now running toward. They're going to be shouting for his, his blood. They're going to be shouting for his death. They're going to be shouting, crucify him. Right? See, crowds are easily swayed. And, and so it's, what I mean is we're thinking about this whole issue with refugees. Is it's easy to get worked up about a cause, but it's difficult to sustain true compassion. I was traveling last weekend, so I wasn't here. Uh, I was so thankful for Ian uh, serving us last week uh, in preaching. It was an interesting time to, to be traveling. I, I was going through an airport on Sunday, and you know there, there was an executive order. I don't know if you guys heard this. There was an executive order on Friday. It, sort of mass chaos in airports around the country. And uh, thankfully, there weren't a whole lot of people passing through Kansas City to Charlotte, uh, sort of an interior route. But um, it was, you know, flight and everything was fine. But uh, when we left Charlotte, there was a crowd of protesters outside the airport. And, and look, I'm, I'm thankful to live in a country where citizens can, can step out and, and take action like that. I'm thankful we live in a place where they, they have a voice, we have a voice, and... Um, I'm glad they're there. I'm, I'm not commenting on whether or not they should have opposed it or should have supported it or anything like that. But I did have this thought as I was leaving the airport, as I was, as I was driving through this crowd of people with their signs protesting what was going on. I, I just wondered how many of these people, I wonder, have an actual relationship with a refugee? You know, I mean, uh, if, you were to, if you were to glance at my Facebook feed this week, you would think that that all of my friends are like captains of the Salvation Army and are on the front lines of this thing all the time because they're all so up in arms about this. And you know what? There are things that it's good to be up in arms about. I'm, I'm not poking fun at the, at the frustration. What, but what I am challenging us to as a church is let's be careful that we don't let our compassion be swayed by the crowds. Because the reality is, 
it, it's kind of a buzz thing right now to, to be excited about caring for refugees and to be really um, offended by anyone that would suggest otherwise. But this new cycle is going to go out just like all the rest. And in a couple weeks, there'll be a new cause. And, and the crowds will drift away from these people who have very legitimate needs and are, and are incredibly vulnerable. And, and, and in, in moments like that, I think it, that's when it's so significant for the church of Jesus Christ to rise up and be the ones that are going to consistently show compassion. When the crowds drift away and are easily swayed in some other direction that, that may or may not be in line with the gospel, we need to be the people who look to our Lord, who is willing to reach out and touch a man that no one else would speak to. And we need, we need to be the people that are there to provide the care and, and love and, and welcoming attitude of compassion that, that our Lord Jesus has shown to us. So when you look at uh, the, the story here, Jesus, at the end of it, the, the crowds come in, and, and I don't want to put too much into this, but I do think uh, Jesus, uh, as you read the Gospels, Jesus consistently responds to the crowd in the exact opposite way that most of us do. You know, if we had 300 people there, here this morning, we'd be pretty pumped, wouldn't we? Right? I mean, that'd be a lot more than we, when we normally do, yeah? Um, we'd be fine with that. I don't know where they'd go, but we'd be happy to have them. And and we would instinctively think that something really good is happening because a bunch of more people are here than usual. And Jesus gets these big crowds of people around him and he's like, I'm going to go and spend time with my father. You know, I, I, I just, I know how flighty you guys are. You see, I, I know what's in your heart. I know the depths of man's heart. And I just can't get all excited about all these people coming to me with their needs because I just know tomorrow they're going to be going to somebody else. And so Jesus is, is able to withdraw and, and he goes and he seeks, he seeks strength from the Father. And again, I think he set an example here for us that if we're to, to truly practice Christ-like compassion, we can't be swayed by the things going on in our culture. Uh, we, we've got to really look to the example of Jesus and, and ask, what does that look like in my world today? Uh, and, and I hope we answer that question independent of headlines, independent of executive orders, independent of court decisions, I hope we answer it by looking to the scriptures. So Jesus uh, possesses the compassion to heal. Jesus possessed the, uh, I'm forgetting my points. I'm so sorry. He possessed the knowledge to transform. And then lastly, he possesses the authority to forgive. So I want to quickly look at this last story. Um, Jesus is going to heal a man now who is, is paralyzed. And it's interesting there in verse 17, we have the first mention of the Pharisees. We'll see them come to the forefront as the story progresses. Interestingly enough, they seem to perhaps understand what is going on here more than anyone else in the story. And yet their knowledge does not lead them to faith. It leads them to contempt. And so what happens here? Well, Jesus is in a crowded house. Some men have a friend that they want to bring before him, one of these people within the crowds. They go to great lengths to get him there. It's pretty impressive. They, they undo some things in the roof, and they, they drop him down in front of Jesus. And then Jesus responds in a really striking way in verse 20. It says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. So again, they, they bring a physical problem before him, and he addresses something else altogether. I think, again, he's demonstrating that he really has a deeper knowledge of the man's true needs. He doesn't just need his legs to begin working, but he has a problem in his heart. And Jesus cares about him enough to start there. I think that's instructive for us. 
But there's a bigger thing going on here, and the, and the Pharisees clue in on this real quickly. Jesus himself announces or proclaims that the guy is forgiven. And, and that should strike us as rather odd. I mean, you, you can't really forgive someone unless you yourself have been wronged. I mean, if you and your, your spouse were to come to me for counseling and, and you start telling me all the things she's done to you, and I, and I turn to her and say, it's okay, I forgive you. It, you know, that wouldn't even make sense. And it certainly wouldn't help the situation. I mean, she doesn't do anything to me. And so what good does it matter for me to say that? But that's exactly the point Jesus is making. He's, he's wanting them to recognize that he actually has the authority to forgive their sins because this man's sins were against him. They were transgressions against him. And so he can wipe his slate clean because when this man sinned, he was sinning against Jesus. This is an audacious claim. And as I mentioned, the Pharisees are the first to get it. You see them start kind of whispering amongst themselves, or maybe they're just thinking these thoughts. The text isn't exactly clear. But who is this who speaks blasphemies? Verse 21, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's exactly the point Jesus is making. And then again, you see the knowledge of Jesus appear to everything else in verse 22. He perceived their thoughts, and he says, okay, well, let's think about this. What is easier to do? Is it, is, is it easier to announce something invisible that we couldn't verify? Or would it be easier to, to do something visible that would be clearly uh, provable, we might say, right? It'd be undeniable because you see it there. On one sense, maybe it's harder to forgive sins than make a man walk. I'm not sure which one would be more difficult, but it's certainly harder to prove that his sins are forgiven. It's sort of undeniable if his legs begin to function, right? And so Jesus working off that logic, says, so that you'll understand, so that you'll recognize I have the authority to forgive sins, so that you'll see my spiritual authority, let me demonstrate my authority over the physical realm. And he turns to the guy. All the while, he's been waiting on this theological discussion to play out. Um, <laughs> and he says to the guy, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. See, Jesus wants them to recognize, he wants them to know that he has the authority to do these things. And there's an interesting sort of lack of resolution at the end of the text because we never actually hear from the Pharisees again right here. We're obviously going to hear from them some more, but we don't hear their reaction here. And so I think as a, as a reader, we're left in a bit of a tension. You've got uh, the crowds that are amazed Again, they're, they're excited. Jesus has exceeded all expectations for them. But the Pharisees, they seem to understand what's going on, and yet they're, they're troubled. They're, they're not as excited as the crowds. And I think there's something instructive for us that we can think about as, as we begin to, to, to wrap this chapter up a little bit. It, it seems that Luke is setting forth before us this idea that there's a form of excitement that could be void of knowledge, I mean, the crowds were, were excited. They were elated about Jesus. But at, at this point, most of them, I don't think, seem to actually possess saving faith. They don't seem to actually know what is going on. They're maybe faking that knowledge a bit. And yet, then there's a kind of knowledge that lacks joy. I mean, the Pharisees get it. They recognize that guy just claimed to be God. And then, he's, then he set up this argument that he basically proved himself to be God. And yet we're led to believe that even though they recognize the truth, they're, they're running from it. 
It's not that they don't understand it. They get it. They just don't, they don't like it. And so there, there's this tension between those who would not, those who would be excited but lack understanding, and then those who would recognize what's going on but want to run away from what they see. And I think Luke is very subtly in this chapter trying to call us to a middle ground that would balance the, tr- the two, knowledge and joy. And I think the only people we see in this chapter who get it, who truly get it, are those couple of disciples that were mentioned in that first story. We didn't look at the verse, but look back at verse 11. It says, When they had brought their boats to land, this is James, John, and Simon at least, they brought their boats to land, they left everything, and they followed him. They set aside all that they had been about, and they went after the mission of God. And I think in his own way, Luke is trying to help us see, like, you don't want to be like the crowds that just get really excited about things, but really lack a root to what they're doing. And you don't want to be like the Pharisees who get it, who, who cognitively and mentally understand it, but they don't love it. They, they turn away from it. You want to be like the disciples, whatever that looks like. I don't think they have perfect understanding of everything going on either at this point in the story. And as the stories bear out in Luke, we'll see there are many things that they still have wrong in their heads, right? But you want to be like the disciples who are balancing living out of what they know and living toward the grace that God provides in Jesus. And so I think these stories give us a good test to consider for ourselves as we wrap up. Do you truly know Jesus? I mean, perhaps you've seen some extraordinary things like these crowds, Perhaps you've had moments in your own history where you've gotten really excited about the things of God. But the Lord makes it very clear, if we don't have a root of faith, if we don't have a true relationship with Him, that excitement is going to wane. And and that season where everything feels really good and and you're you're going to church and you're doing all this Christian stuff, you're just going to tire out in time if you're doing it in your own strength. And you're going to be like these crowds that... You're all around the guy right now, but when things get tough, when the cost of discipleship goes up, you're going to get out of there. You're going to find something else to do, something easier, something less uh, taxing on yourself. Or are you perhaps more inclined toward the Pharisees' error? Maybe, maybe you're understanding these things. Maybe you've been around these truths your whole life, and you've never truly experienced the joy of a relationship with God. And it would be remiss of us, because I, I know that a lot of the people in this room and a lot of you have uh, specific theological training, Bible college, seminary, degrees, all sorts of good stuff. It would be remiss of us not to acknowledge that the most well-trained people in the room are the people that have the biggest problem with what Jesus is doing here. Because what he's doing doesn't match their ideas And so I think we ought to be warned by that. And we ought to ask this question genuinely, do I really know him? And do I live like I do? We're going to unpack what that means more next week. But I think what we see in the disciples who go, what we see with Simon, John, James, is that those who truly know him want to do all they can to make him known to others. And so they're willing to leave all they have and they're willing to follow after him whatever the cost. And it provides a great test for us. And so as we go to the communion table this morning, I want to invite you. We're going to, we're going to sing a song in a minute. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. And, and uh, if you're a Christian, 
I, I want to invite you to just take a moment before we go through the, the motions of what we do every week here at Midlands and, and go to the back of the room and, and take of the bread and the juice and experience communion again. I, I want you to just pause and reflect on that question. Do I know the Lord? And, and am I living like I know the Lord? If you're not a believer, I hope that out of all of this, you would, you would see clearly that the path toward knowledge is not through your own action. It's, it's not, I'll start doing all these things and then Jesus will begin to love me for all the ways that I serve him and, and then he'll be impressed by me and he'll invite me in. But no, you come to Jesus in your humility. It's, it's right after Peter recognizes that he's spiritually empty that Jesus invites him in. So maybe you're in that moment this morning and maybe today will be the day when, when you finally recognize your need for the Lord. And so I would, I would invite you to spend some time in prayer and cry out to him and ask for his help today. I'll be in the back of the room. If anybody wants to talk, I'd love to do that this morning. Uh, but let's pray and then let's be honest before the Lord today uh, as we go to the communion table. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word. And I thank you for the things that you um, have taught me this week as I have just lived in this text and, and thought over some of these things over and over. And um, I'm just humbled by your grace, God. I think of that, uh, that statement that Justin read earlier before our prayer time, that you have qualified us. We're so underqualified when we come to you, Lord. And yet, Lord, you, you qualify us in your grace and your mercy in your kindness and in your love. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and give us clarity as we reflect on these things today. We thank you that through your, your death on the cross, you, you made a way for us to be forgiven. It's like the paralytic in this text. We, we can hear those same words spoken over us. Thank you that you, you've given us grace for that in your death. And, and in your resurrection, Lord, in that empty tomb, I thank you, God, that you've given us hope for new life. And I pray that we would walk in that new life as we leave here, uh, living for you, glorifying you as we make you known to others. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.